Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Free of Charge. I'm your host, Larkin Mosskrop, a program manager for the Advanced Reactors Directorate at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. And today's episode is all about the science of spent nuclear fuel, or nuclear fuel that's been already used in a reactor. The reason we're talking about this today is because spent fuel is something that has technical, social, and environmental relevance to the nuclear conversation, and is a common concern or question that many people have about nuclear. With the help of three researchers from Canadian Nuclear Labs, we're going to be walking through what's spent fuel is and what it isn't, what Canada does with it, and what can be done with it in the future. We're going to wrap up with management strategies that could change into the future, and we're really going to deep dive into the value of a kilogram of uranium. First in front of the mic is Aaron Berry. Aaron is a fuel program specialist in CNL's fuel program, which is responsible for the long-term management of all used fuel across Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, or AECL sites, including CNL itself. He's involved in used fuel research, technology development, and the operation of the facilities needed to do this work. Thanks for being here today, Aaron. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the basics. What exactly is spent nuclear fuel? So in Canada, the vast majority of spent or used fuel is can-do fuel. And what that looks like is uranium dioxide ceramic pellets inside a zirconium tube um, and then welded closed. And then these tubes are arranged inside a bundle about the size of a fire log. And currently in Canada, we have about 3.2 million of these spent can-do fuel bundles, or about 61,000 tons. And if you stack them all inside a hockey rink, you would, from the ice to the top of the boards, you'd have about nine hockey rinks full of fuel. Each one of these bundles uh, has produced about 1,100 megawatts of megawatt hours of electricity over its lifetime, or about one home for 100 years. Okay, so it's not green or glowing or even oozing. It sounds like it's solid? Yeah, it's a solid and it the way after it comes out, it looks almost exactly the same. The only key difference is that it's now radioactive. So there's a radioactive dose associated with it and also it's generating heat. Okay, so when we take this fuel out of the reactor, it's both thermally, so generating heat, and radioactively hot. So can you walk us through what happens to a fuel assembly after it leaves the reactor? So immediately once it's discharged, it gets put into what we call spent fuel bays. And these look like a swimming pool, only they're much deeper. They're about six to eight meters deep, and they're double-walled full of concrete. And the reason they're double-walled is that you can determine if there's any leaking of the water coming out of that. And this works really well because the water can provide both cooling and shielding. So that water provides all the shielding from that radioactive dose, and it also acts as a big heat sink for all the heat that that fuel is generating. And it's also really convenient because it's clear and it allows for fuel inspections inside the bay as well. So this big swimming pool allows us to move these logs of nuclear fuel into them to cool down. Is it doing anything radioactively too or just cooling down thermally? Once the fuel has been discharged from the reactor, there's no more nuclear reactions going on. So everything's been halted and it's just cooling and shielding the workers from that radioactive dose. And how long do they need to stay in these fuel bays? After about seven to ten years for can-do fuel, the fuel has cooled off enough that you can start to move it into dry storage. Cooled off thermally or radioactively? Both. Uh, the thermal dose, the thermal heat output is related to the radioactive dose, but generally in order to move it into dry storage, the heat needs to be below a certain threshold. Okay, so then it's seven to ten years later, and it's moving into dry storage. First, what is dry storage and what other criteria are there for moving fuel there? 
So dry storage in Canada, there's three different main designs. We call them concrete canisters, max stores, and dry storage containers. And they're all slightly a little bit different, but they all share a few common characteristics. They're all use concrete shielding now instead of water shielding, and they use air cooling instead of water. So it's a completely passive system. There's no forced air over it. There's no forced water. It's just passive air cooling. And so how that works is you seal the fuel inside an airtight package when it's inside those bays, and you dry it, and then you move it into these concrete canisters or max stores or dry storage containers. And some of the key advantages of them is they produce less radioactive waste over time because you're no longer producing radioactive filters from those spent fuel pools. They require much less maintenance than a pool and have lower operating costs. There's less radiation exposure to the, to the workers and less potential for contamination. And they're also easier to expand in the future as you need more additional storage. So why would we dry the fuel when it comes out? Why does it need to be dry? So water has the potential to corrode lots of things, as you might notice on your car or something like that. And so if you keep the fuel completely dry, you will help preserve the integrity of that fuel into the future. Right. So dry storage happens after those seven to 10 years, and it goes into these canisters. Now, how long can the fuel stay in those? So most designs in Canada are, are licensed for 50 years. Um, but they could potentially stay in there for much longer or be moved into new storage structures and be stored almost indefinitely into the future. It sounds like dry storage seems like the right idea or the best idea for spent fuel, but is there anything else in terms of disposal or can we use storage as well? So there is a disposal option that is often referred to as rolling stewardship in which the responsibility for that spent fuel gets passed on from generation to generation into the future. Now with spent fuel, it takes 100,000 million, 10 million years to reach the same radioactivity level that it had when it was fresh uranium. So that's a lot of generations into the future <laughs> that you're gonna be burdening with this rolling stewardship. And so that rolling stewardship would be with those canisters, if we just left fuel there? You could keep them in those canisters, but you'd probably have to change them every century plus maybe. Right, okay. There's another term that is deep geologic repository, and a lot of people associate that with our long-term solution for nuclear waste. Is that really the long-term solution? Yeah, so disposal is in placing a material somewhere without the intent to ever retrieve it. So when you dispose of spent nuclear fuel deep underground, you are dispositioning that liability to future generations. So once that fuel has been emplaced and the whole repository has been sealed, there is no obligations to future generations to actively manage that fuel anymore. The whole system is passively safe and functions without any human intervention. That's the difference between that rolling stewardship of moving the fuel every 100 years or so versus in, like, in placing it in a deep geologic repository. So how is a DGR really different from above ground concrete storage? Sure. So an, a deep geological repository is this engineered system where you have multiple barriers to prevent any releases of material out into the biosphere. So when you dispose of this material, it's 500 meters or so underground. And at those levels, the water there is very different from water at the surface. It's very stagnant and very low in oxygen. And it's almost a completely water, different water system from the surface. The water at those levels is millions of years old. And so water doesn't go from those depths up to the surface very easily. And there's also a bunch of barriers in between. So the first barrier itself is the fuel pellet. 
So that uranium dioxide, it's actually very resistant to corrosion and it will hold the majority of those radioactive materials inside of it and not release them from the, the fuel itself at all. Then you also have the fuel cladding itself acts as a barrier to release. And then a major component is the disposal container, which in Canada is a copper coated steel container. And in the reference case and the prevailing chemical conditions at those depths, that container survives for thousands and thousands of years. You also have bentonite clay surrounding that container and bentonite clay swells on contact with water such that the water has a hard time getting in to reach the container and then it also has a very hard time getting back out. And then of course you have 500 meters or so of that host rock that prevents material that would eventually get out to getting to the, the biosphere where humans and animals and all life really exists. And so over time, because this material will decay with time, it'll eventually reach the uh, equivalent radioactivity that it was when it was natural uranium. So that's what you're trying to, to get to, keep all the material in that repository for 100,000 or a million years. And that first 1,000 to 10,000 years is probably of the greatest interest. And ultimately, the uh, regulator has uh, dose rates at the surface as the ultimate safety metric to make sure that all future life at the surface of that repository will not receive an appreciable dose uh, from radioactivity in the future. So it sounds like a lot of a lot of it has to do with not having water contact the fuel, um, probably because of the corrosion of that cladding. Um, but even if it did, it would still be sealed inside because of the clay. Yeah. So the reference case is the water makes contact with the container, and at those prevailing chemical conditions the container does not corrode over the critical period of time and everything stays sealed within that container. And even if you had a certain number of containers fail, the fuel and the um, cladding also prevents fission products and radioactivity from coming out of the fuel. And the other barriers also prevent, like the bentonite clay and the host rock, prevent the radioactivity from reaching the surface. So zooming, I guess, more specifically into the Canadian context, what is Canada's strategy for spent nuclear fuel disposal? So in Canada, we have an organization called the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, and they were formed in 2002 by an act of the government of Canada. And they act as a not-for-profit. They're funded by the waste generators under this principle of polluter pays. And they started what they call a, a voluntary site selection process in 2010, where they had 22 communities volunteer to learn more about the process and potentially host the deep geological repository where all the fuel will be disposed of. And over the years since then, they've been narrowing that selection down to the two uh, communities, currently Ignis and South Bruce. And next year in 2024, they're going to decide on one of those two sites as their preferred site. Then they'll start detailed characterization and licensing. Uh, construction will um, be around 2033. And then the first transportation of spent fuel to that site and actually actively putting spent fuel and disposing of it will be in the 2040s. Interesting. So, you know, throughout my, my life, I guess I've heard of deep geologic repositories. I know that Finland has one. Um, but are all countries looking for DGRs? Not every country is looking into a deep geological repository. Other countries are exploring some options like reprocessing or fast reactors. Eventually, all these reactors, they have fission products that are a true waste form and require a deep geological repository. So even if you do reprocess fuel or use fast reactors, at some point in the waste stream, you are going to have material that has no use and has to be disposed of in a deep geological repository. 
Interesting. So at CNL, I know we've operated several research reactors like the National Research Experimental and the National Research Universal. And because of this, we have our own spent nuclear fuel. So how are we handling it? Uh, so at CNL, we manage the inventory of Atomic Energy of Canada Limited on their behalf, and we currently store it all dry, and we're looking at long-term plans on how to send it to the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. Next up is George Xue. George is a chemical scientist at CNL, trained in radiochemistry, nuclear fuel reprocessing, and waste management. He's currently leading a group of scientists to develop cost-effective solutions to manage spent nuclear fuel and radioactive waste streams by researching the science that underlie these types of challenges. He's going to tell us about what could be an alternate to spent fuel disposal, a practice called reprocessing. And before we get into this, we'd like to be clear that Canadian Nuclear Laboratory's interest in the reprocessing of spent nuclear fuel lies purely in research. Today's conversation on reprocessing strictly focuses on the theory, science, and potential of the practice and should not be viewed as a reflection of a policy position. All right, with that said, enjoy. Welcome, George. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's start at the basics. Define what reprocessing is and why would we talk about it? Well, in principle, um, the uranium, like plutonium, neptunium, curium contained uh, in the spent fuel can be reprocessed and recycled into new fuel that can be used in like candle reactor and uh, advanced reactors. So in the spent fuel, there's more than actually 95 to 99% of high metals that can be reused. Reprocessing basically recover uh, these high metals and for recycling in uh, new reactor fuel. Um, so currently, like in France, uh, UK, and Japan, the reprocessing mainly recovers uh, plutonium and uranium that can be reused in like uh, called a mixed uh, uh, oxide fuel, including plutonium and uranium. So in the future, that uh, all the uranium and all the transuranium uh, heavy metals actually can be reprocessed and recycled. So that will uh, eliminate all the long-lived radiotoxicity in the spent fuel. So when we take a fuel bundle out of a reactor after it's operated and it's produced energy, you're saying that there's stuff that's still left inside of it that can be reprocessed into making new fuel. So just like we recycle an aluminum can. That's correct. That's correct. There's uh, more than like 90 to 99% of energy still left in the used fuel. And is it the same type? Is it still uranium or is it something else? Well, uh, including uranium, there's also like a heavier metal than uh, uranium, such as uh, uh, neptunium, plutonium, curium, uh, magnesium, mm. produced from uranium. Uh, neutron reaction. So those are also can be recycled and reused and to generate energy. Oh, okay. So the reactor has to go undergo the uranium nuclear fission in order to produce some of the extra energy that's in the fuel bundle at the end. That's correct. So uh, when the um, uranium fission produces energy, it actually also generates more higher metals and also generate higher metals that can be used to produce more energy. So the fuel comes out, we can reprocess to use these different types of heavy metals. But you mentioned something about advanced reactors. How, what kinds of advanced reactors can use the mixed fuel? 
Well, the thermal reactor mainly uh, utilizes the, the fissile material such as uh, uh, uranium-235 isotope and also plutonium-239 isotope. So for the advanced reactor like such as the, neutron, uh, the fast neutron spectrum reactor, you actually can consume uh, the material like uh, uranium-238 isotope and all other transuranium isotopes. So I want to give a little bit of probably an explanation here. All the, the trans-uranium isotopes means any isotope is heavier than the uranium. So uranium makes heavier isotopes than uranium? That's correct. So when uranium reacts with neutron, it produces heavier, uh, heavy, <laughs> heavy metals. <laughs> How does that work? Well, basically, when uh, when uranium fission, it, uh, it releases like neutrons. So then neutrons will be captured by uh, uranium-238. So that will transmute uranium-238 to plutonium, neptunium, and sequentially, you know, by capturing more neutrons. Interesting. So where, like, what is the benefit to reprocessing rather than disposal? Well, in the current uh, scenario, if we have to spend fuel, so... Uh, if we want to dispose the spent in a uh, deeper geological repository, so that means we have like long-lived radiotoxicity that could last hundred thousand years. So by reprocess, you can reduce. If you just reprocess to recover plutonium, you can reduce like ninety percent of long-lived radiotoxicity. If you reprocess, recover all the uranium and all the heavy metals or all the transuranium metals, you can basically eliminate the majority of the, the long-lived radiotoxicity. So that only leaves you with only those are called uh, long-lived light elements that have relatively low radiotoxicity and also low uh, chemical toxicity in the waste. But wouldn't that mean that reprocessing would result in some pretty heavy toxicity waste? So actually, no. <laughs> so by reprocessing, you actually reduce the radiotoxicity of your waste. So make your waste toxicity can only last like a few hundred years instead of hundred thousand years. So it really makes a lot of sense to do reprocessing before putting it in a DGR. That's right, that's right. But uh, also reprocessing can be quite uh, uh, expensive in terms of capital investment. So that's why in a lot of countries, they choose the, the cheaper way to just put the, the spent fuel into a, a deeper geological repository. Are there places around the world that are reprocessing? Yeah, just as I mentioned before, so like in France, they have been practicing reprocessing for many decades. And all the reprocessed plutonium is made into a new uh, fuel that fit into the current uh, the power uh, generating reactors. Uh, UK also practiced reprocessing for a very long time until uh, 2020. Japan also currently practicing reprocessing for uh, France. And I think in Russia also that they are practicing reprocessing for many decades. So you mentioned plutonium quite a few times in this conversation. Yeah. And plutonium is normally associated with weapons. So is that one of the reasons that Canada does not reprocess? Well, this can be one of uh, uh, one of the reasons, but it's not probably uh, the overriding factor that, that prevent Canada from uh, reprocessing. Uh, currently, in Canada, we only have candle reactors. So candle reactors use uh, large uranium fuel. 
And uh, natural uranium current is very cheap. So if you use natural uranium in instead of uh, more expensive reprocessed plutonium and uranium, you can make more money, you know. So that's probably a primary reason that Canada hasn't done the reprocessing yet. So they've talked a lot about, or at least I've heard recently, quite a few people mentioned that there's only like a hundred year supply of uranium. So is that one of the reasons that reprocessing would be something to look at into the future, especially as the nuclear fleet expands? Yeah, actually, uh, I think that now the time is quite different. One thing is that you just talk about the, the, the uranium supply that only will last a hundred years. And the second one is that current Canada has a, a small module reactor action plan and also a, a roadmap. So uh, so that will change the landscape for the reprocessing because all the small module reactors will use in, uh, low enriched uranium, means the uranium will contain higher uranium-235 isotope than the natural uranium. And Canada currently doesn't have uh, any enri enrichment facility. Mm. Well. The, the synergy is that the plutonium and uranium in the spent fuel, if you repress and recover, that can be used in place of uh, low-enriched uranium or in place of uranium-235. So much potential with reprocessing in Canada and advanced reactors. That's right. So if we are able to reprocess spent fuel in Canada and recover plutonium or recover the plutonium and all the transuranium metals, so we'll have a sustainable fuel supply for uh, the small reactor considerably in Canada. And a reduced waste stream. So it's a win-win. Yeah, so we will reduce that at least 90% or 100% along with the radiotoxicity. And also we will reduce like uh, waste volume, volume by maybe 70 or 80%. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and having this conversation about reprocessing. As you can tell, it's one of my favorite topics in nuclear. And I'm, I can tell from you that it's one of yours too. Thank you very much, Naki. Now, leading us into our final exploration for today's episode of where the possibilities used fuel reprocessing could take us, I'm speaking with Blair Bromley. Blair is a reactor physicist at CNL, serving as a principal investigator and technical lead on many multidisciplinary projects evaluating advanced nuclear fuels, fuel cycles, and reactor concepts relevant for various small modular reactors, microreactors, Gen 4, and Gen 3 plus technologies. Welcome, Blair. Thank you very much. So George spoke a little bit about reprocessing and what it is and how it can be used to create new fuel, but how much more energy can really be extracted? The amount of energy that can be extracted from spent fuel is actually quite incredible, quite uh, mind-boggling. So just to give you an example, uh, a kilogram of natural uranium, uh, we get about over 7,000 megawatt days of heat energy out of that. But we're actually only using less than a percent of that energy potential. So if we were to continuously recycle that fuel, uh, recycle all the uranium, all the trace amounts of plutonium, all the trace amounts of minor actinides, and make that into new fuel, if we were to do that on a continuous basis, eventually we could get maybe 130, 140 times the amount of the original energy. What's exactly an actinide? Oh, an, an actinide is a heavy element. It's, uh, so for example, plutonium is an actinide. It's a little bit heavier than uranium, but there are other uh, heavy elements that are even heavier than plutonium or similar to plutonium like neptunium, 
uh, curium and americium. These are elements that are slightly heavier and they're found in trace amounts in spent or slightly utilized nuclear fuel. Wonderful. I think George was talking about just heavier or transuranics. Is that the same thing? It's the same thing. Cool. With reprocessing, we're recycling fuel, but is there more to it than that? Is there some other advantage? Well, the primary advantage, which has a really long-term economic advantages, is to extract the full energy potential. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, whenever you recycle a fuel and you keep fissioning out the uranium, the plutonium, and all the minor actinides, uh, you're basically keeping that above ground and using it for making energy, which is good. And then the only thing you do, like the, the fission products, the stuff that comes out of the fission process, uh, that's the stuff that you really want to put into a deep geological repository for long-term storage so that it can decay away to levels that are the same as natural uranium ore. So the advantage is that you, you make money in the future by having more energy available, and you save money by not putting that fuel into a deep geological repository. You only put in the fission products. So those fission products, George was mentioning that we're really taking out the long-lived things when we do reprocessing. So it's just the short term. Does it really make sense to use a DGR for that? There's different per perspectives on that. It may be, uh, there might be political or social advantages. But, you know, for example, some of the shorter-lived fission products, the, the good examples are cesium-137 and strontium-90. They have a half-life of about maybe 30 years. So for it to decay to the point where it's no more radioactive than uranium ore, it takes about 10 times a half-life. So it takes about 300 to 500 years. So if you put cesium-137 into a DGR, let it sit there for about 300 years or more, it's the same as natural uranium ore. And Aaron was mentioning that the dry storage containers last about 50 to 100 years. So that rolling stewardship for those would be maybe three or five containers worth. So it's kind of the idea of making sure that it's safe for those three to 500 years. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, above ground storage for 50 to 100 years, that's perfect. Because what happens is that you give uh, the, the slightly utilized nuclear fuel, it contains various radioactive isotopes. You give it 50 to 100 years for it to decay away. And then after that period, you have a choice. You can take that uh, spent fuel, you can put it into a longer term storage into a DGR, or you might choose to reprocess and recycle it to make new fuel. But you know, after 100 years or so, it's going to be a lot easier to handle. So for reprocessing, is there a time gap that you have to wait? Aaron walked us through where we take a fuel bundle out, we put it in wet storage for seven to 10 years, then it can go into the dry storage. Is there a period of time that we have to wait between or can we just do reprocessing right from the reactor? Uh, if you wanted to reprocess immediately, like if you pulled a, a fuel bundle out of a reactor and you want to reprocess it immediately, in principle you can. Uh, it's just that it's a lot more radioactive. It's better to let it sit for, you know, I think a lot of studies throughout the world that are looking at re reprocessing recycling fuel, they typically like to wait five years. Uh, but the longer you wait, the better, the easier it is to handle the fuel. But that's for reactors that typically have solid-based fuels. Uh, in France, they recycle the fuel from their pressurized water reactors. I think they let it sit for about five years cooling, and then the radioactivity is dropped off enough that when they go to do the chemical reprocessing, it's a lot easier. Easier and safer, I imagine. Yes, safer and easier. Wonderful. Okay, so you used a new term um, that I actually just heard, um, is slightly utilized nuclear fuel. Yes. How is that the same or different or... What is it compared to spent fuel or used fuel? Okay. Uh, the terminology evolves and changes with time. And as we know, choice of words and language is very important. 
And I think by calling in the past, or typically we call it spent fuel, or we call it used nuclear fuel, or some people like to call it nuclear waste, which is a really big no-no as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think it's more accurate and more honest and more sincere to call it slightly utilized nuclear fuel, because that's exactly what it is. We've only used less than 1% of the energy potential in that fuel. Uh, so slightly utilized nuclear fuel is mostly fuel with a tiny amount, less than 1% of fission products. And it's those fission products that we want to separate out very carefully and put into storage for 300 years or more. That's the strategy. That's the long-term strategy that we really should be taking with our fuel. Why can't we just leave the fuel in for longer in the reactors? Well, the thing is, uh, the amount of time you let the fuel sit in a reactor depends on the initial fissile content. So, for example, this is an illustrative example. In a can-do reactor, it uses natural uranium fuel. And natural uranium fuel contains about 0.7% fissile isotope uranium-235. And that has enough reactivity. That's the terminology that reactor physicists like to use. <laughs> but it has enough reactivity that it can sit in the reactor for, for several months and then... Uh, it basically, it, you burn out your fuel and you don't have enough PEP. You don't have enough neutral multiplication. So basically, you've consumed enough fissile material that it can't keep itself going. It can't stay critical. So you have to put it in a new new log. You have to put in another log of fuel. And in can-do reactors, they typically put in, you know, eight new fuel bundles every day. So it's like stoking the fire. When you burn out the fuel, then there's not enough fissile fuel available to keep the reaction going, to keep the, the reactor critical. So that uh, it basically it's... It's still cooking. <laughs> so it's not just that uranium that we reprocess, but it's the other things in it that allow us to get so much more energy. Exactly. Basically, any isotope that's a heavy element can be fissioned. So uh, any isotope of uranium, any isotope of neptunium, plutonium, emery, some curium, they're all heavy elements. And if we keep bombarding them with neutrons, eventually they will transmute or undergo fission and release energy. You know, George mentioned that reprocessing is really expensive. Yeah, it is. But uh, the, the value of, of what you get out of reprocessing far outweighs the costs. And we have to consider both short-term costs and then long-term costs. So there's a short-term cost uh, to reprocessing, but there's a, a huge long-term economic gain by reprocessing. And what kind of scale are we talking? Well, just to give you a simple example, you know, I was talking earlier about what is the value of a kilogram of natural uranium. If we were to convert all of that natural uranium eventually into energy, it would be worth approximately a million dollars. So a kilogram of uranium would be worth a million bucks. And to a first approximation, that's almost 10 times the, its value of gold. So you have a kilogram of gold, it's worth about $100,000, actually a bit less than that. But uh, a kilogram of uranium, if you continuously recycle it and extract all the energy out of it, and you have to make some approximations and assumptions, but to a first approximation, it's worth a million bucks. That's so, amazing. You tell me what you prefer. <laughs> How can reprocessing contribute to advanced reactors and new types of technologies? Well, there's many nations that consider, consider uh, reprocessing and recycling an integral part of an advanced reactor program. You know, if you want to uh, dig the uranium out of the ground and then enrich it and then put it into a reactor and let it go through once and then pull it out and then store it long term, you can do that. That's a choice. Uh, but if you choose to recycle the fuel, you're going to recycle all that uranium, you're going to recycle all that plutonium, all those minor actinides. You'll just keep recycling it and just keep cycling it through the reactor continuously until it eventually undergoes fission, uh, yielding 
you know, 100 times as much energy. So are there types of advanced reactors that are better for this than others? That depends on who you talk to, but in principle, any reactor can be used for recycling fuel. For, for example, candy reactors, they have what's called a really excellent neutron economy. They conserve neutrons. They don't waste neutrons. So candy heavy water reactors can operate with natural uranium, and they can actually use spent fuel from other types of reactors to sustain the nuclear reaction and to produce energy. In the longer term, it's more likely uh, that if we're trying to recycle plutonium, uh, we'll probably want to use what are called fast reactors. And in fast reactors, the neutrons are not slowed down. They're just kept going fast. A slow neutron versus a fast neutron, why does it matter if they're hitting the same thing? Well, it matters because of the probability of causing fission. So uh, when a neutron is emitted from the process of fission, it's coming out super duper fast. It's going like maybe 10,000 kilometers a second, and uh, which is pretty darn fast. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, a fast neutron has a very low probability of causing fission. Uh, there's this uh, measurement called uh, a barn. It's a measurement of the probability of neutron interactions with material. Okay. So the fission cross-section for most heavy elements, it doesn't matter, it could be uranium, it could be plutonium, they all are approximately one to two barns. Okay. Like the, like the broadside of a barn, but a barn is very, very tiny. <laughs> Whereas, it, and, and that's when the neutron's really super duper fast. But if you slow down that neutron, and you can slow down the neutron by bouncing it around like, like a pool ball against light elements like hydrogen, deuterium, graphite. It, it eventually it undergoes all these collisions with moderator, which slows down neutrons. And if you slow it down from 10,000 kilometers per second to 2 kilometers a second, so we're talking about several orders of magnitude where yeah. its speed is being reduced by, by a factor of a million or more. The probability of, of undergoing fission increases by almost a factor of 500. So just to give you an illustrative example, uh, the fissile isotope uranium-235, which we find in natural uranium, it's got a, a fission cross-section of about somewhere between, let's say about 500 barns. So it's 500 times that of, of, of a fast neutron. So that's why most of the reactors around the world are what are called slow neutron reactors or thermal spectrum reactors because we're slowing down the neutrons to increase the probability of fission. And when you slow down neutrons, then you don't have to use as high fissile content. Like candy reactors can operate with natural uranium, which is less than 1% fissile material. And most light water reactors around the world, they typically operate with between 4 and 5% enrichment. So 4 to 5% of the atoms are the fissile isotope U-235. Whereas a fast reactor, a lot of these next generation reactors, because the probability of fission is so small, they have to compensate by increasing the concentration of fissile isotopes. So they typically might be between, say, 15 and 20% fissile U-235, or they might even use fissile plutonium. What other advantages are there really to reprocessing? Well, the number one advantage is essentially harnessing the full energy potential of the nuclear fuel. Uh, the second big advantage, of course, is to reduce the amount of of materials that you have to put into your uh, deep geological repository, fission products. Another th really interesting advantage is that uh, spent fuel or slightly utilized nuclear fuel, it's got all these fission products, all these different, and it's not just, you know, it's not just all the minor actinides and it's not just the plutonium, which is all wonderful stuff, we all love it. And it's not just uh, the fission products, which we kind of don't like too much. It's like a pain in the neck, so we got to store them. But there's also, uh, when the uranium-235 and other heavy elements, when they split apart, 
they produce some really interesting elements and isotopes that are actually quite valuable. So there's like some rare earth metals that are produced. So if you, if you look at the spent fuel, it contains trace amounts, some of these rare earth elements. I'll give you one example is like rhodium. Uh, you can also find palladium. And some of these elements are more valuable than gold or silver. So if you're willing to spend the time and effort, you could extract out these rare earth elements and then they have various industrial uh, applications that are of high value. Right, because uh, rare earth elements, they're one of the limitations to say battery production or even photovoltaic cells, right? Uh, that's possible. I mean, I'm not an expert in that field, but there's a lot of rare materials that uh, essentially a spent fuel is like a mine, not just for uranium and, and plutonium, but it's also mined for these rare earth elements. So it's like a, you know, if I could, I would buy spent fuel from other countries because it's a, it's a valuable resource. Like you guys want to bury it, I want to save that. Well, thank you so much. That was great insights to to why we should really reprocess. And I think uh, I'm sold. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I want to thank Aaron, George, and Blair for all their insights today. I was definitely encouraged and excited about what fuel reprocessing could do for us in the future. Fuel reprocessing and how we manage nuclear fuel is a major point of discussion in the nuclear debate, as I mentioned. And we have a solution for nuclear fuel long term. But today's discussion showed us not only that we do have a solution, but what's currently being done, how we manage fuel safely and effectively, while also how we could possibly make spent fuel into a usable product for the future. Thank you for listening to another episode of Free of Charge, Conversations in Canadian Nuclear Science. This podcast is produced by Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, Canada's premier nuclear science and technology organization. To learn more about us, you can visit our website at www.cnl.ca or follow us on social media. Until next time.